Welcome to Prognosis. I'm Laura Carlson. It's day 103 since coronavirus was declared a global pandemic. Our main story? People who warn we shouldn't become complacent often cite a familiar factoid. The second wave of the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918 was worse than the first. But it turns out the Spanish flu, and even the Black Death of the Middle Ages, can teach us some lessons about our economy, too. But first, here's what happened in virus news today. The United Kingdom reported fewer than 1,000 new cases for the first time since it went into lockdown in late March. The government said there were 15 deaths related to coronavirus, the lowest since March 15th. However, in the U.S., cases continue to spike in a number of states. One of those states is Florida, where new infections rose again on Monday and deaths increased as well. On a rolling seven-day basis, Florida's new cases reached nearly 23,000, their highest level ever. China suspended poultry imports from a Tyson Foods plant where hundreds of employees tested positive for COVID-19. Chinese officials announced Sunday that customs will seize all products from Tyson's Springdale, Arkansas plant that arrive at the country's ports. The move is a potential new threat to meat plants across the world that have seen disruptions because of the virus. In the U.S., hundreds of meatpacking plant workers have become ill, and dozens have died. There's also been a recent uptick in infections at facilities in Brazil and Germany. Finally, news about two new drugs being developed to treat COVID-19. Indian company Glenmark Pharmaceutical was approved to manufacture and sell a coronavirus treatment called Fabiflu, or Favipiravir, for mild to moderate virus patients. The news sent the company's stock up as much as 40%. It's the highest single-day rise ever. And drug maker Gilead is screening volunteers for phase one trials of an inhaled formulation of its remdesivir drug. The treatment would be administered via a nebulizer, which is potentially easier to use outside of the hospital. Remdesivir has already been cleared by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration for emergency use with COVID-19 patients. The next wave of clinical development will study remdesivir for treatment earlier in the disease. And now for today's main story. As soon as the coronavirus became a pandemic, people began making parallels to the Spanish flu outbreak of 1918 and reaching even further back to the Black Death of the Middle Ages. It makes sense. Past pandemics may be our only reference point for whole populations being stricken with illness. But they can also tell us a lot about how economies recover after pandemics. We may no longer be dealing with shillings or feudal lords, but a surprising number of things are similar about what happened to finances during and after those outbreaks. Here's a clip from Bloomberg's excellent Odd Lots podcast, where hosts Tracy Alloway and Joe Weisenthal go deep on what makes markets and economies tick. They talk to Jamie Catherwood, an associate at O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. 
His expertise is in finance history. And he talked about what we can learn about our economic recovery from decades and even centuries old diseases. Is there one moment in history that is is the most relevant to our current situation? There are some interesting trends in both today and the Spanish flu that are similar. And one that I found really interesting was just, there is a paper that talked about the Amazon effect that occurred in the Spanish flu, which hmm. sounds crazy, but um, we've all talked about how kind of Sears was the original uh, Amazon. Right. And there was evidence, I think it was in a Federal Reserve paper that showed uh, on a monthly basis during 1918 and the second wave that was in the fall, um, which is the worst of the uh, three waves, that the sales and business activity for Sears Roebuck and Montgomery Ward, which had mail order catalogs, increased in the worst months of the Spanish flu when more places were shut and kind of lockdown was taking place. Just like today, everyone orders from Amazon while they're kind of hunkered down at home. But what was interesting is that then after the kind of reopening started to occur, some some retailers, not all obviously, reported that the like kind of bounce back after the reopening made up for more than like the sales from when their business had to be shut down. So that was kind of interesting. We got the retail sales for May and they came in way better than expected. So as long as we're talking about the pent up demand equivalent of the Spanish flu, this month's retail sales report would bear out once again, a sort of a similarity. And it's interesting to see kind of today and in the Spanish flu, the different uh, industries and types of uh, retailers that did well and which ones didn't. Like today, you know, see Zoom and other companies like that. Clorox stock was rocketing for a while. But in the Spanish flu, mattress sales actually increased something ridiculous, like 40% or something, because bed rest was such a commonly prescribed like cure by doctors for people who had symptoms. So I, I'm curious, and you've touched on this already, but once the Spanish flu sort of fell away, once the pandemic ended, did we see the economy bounce back, corporate profits bounce back, and make up the yeah. lost income that had occurred during the outbreak? Or was there sort of a permanent hit to output? From what I've read, the effect of the Spanish flu was pronounced, but it was over the short term. And then there was a fairly quick bounce back. But also you have to keep in mind of how much that was due to the Spanish flu and how much was due to the war ending. But bounce back was kind of short lived in itself because in 1920, 1921, you then had a recession. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. I do want to go slightly further back and talk about um, the Middle Ages, the Black Death, aka the Great Plague. 
A lot of people have been looking at that one and talking about the labor market, what might happen to wages and inflation. And I've seen different theories on this. So one explanation says that after the great death, so many people died that there was a shortage of labor and wages eventually went up. But I've heard other people say that one of the reasons wages went up is basically a bunch of the peasants revolted and sort of violently forced uh, better earnings for themselves. What have you learned so far, Jamie? Like, what do your readings tell you on that topic? And so if you survived, then in terms of the Black Death, everything came up peasants. Like, it was a great time to be a peasant after the Black Death, because <laughs> like you mentioned, as you mentioned, um, there there is a lot of disagreement. But from what I've read, there seems to be a agreement that there was a rise in wages after the Black Death, because as you mentioned, so many people died. And to put some numbers around it, the estimates are between 17 and 28 million Europeans. Because so many people had died, what happened was that suddenly all these lords um, who had previously seen over these manor systems where the peasants were working the land and the lord would collect rent um, dues from the peasants, they suddenly faced this problem where they had all this land, but suddenly now there weren't as many um, peasants to work and till the land. So the peasants were able to demand higher wages. And also they had the ability to kind of shop around their services to other lords, which previously wouldn't have been the case. But because every lord was so desperate to hire people to work their land, that if the lord a peasant was currently working for didn't offer them better working conditions, living conditions, and wages, then they could just go to another lord who would be willing to offer them those um, conditions. But overall, the estimates are that wages rose between 20 and 40% from the 1340s to the 1360s. So again, pretty pronounced. But one thing that was a counter to this rise in nominal wages was there was a pretty substantial rise in inflation because the gold and silver supply remained constant, but the amount of people was decimated. So there was just a higher ratio um, of gold and silver per capita. So much of those kind of nominal weekly wage gains were offset by this inflation. But there was obviously a lot of, there were a lot of upset lords because they didn't want to deal with these peasants who were suddenly cocky and knew that they kind of had leverage in this situation. And there were all of these lords who were complaining about peasants who would barely do any work. Like they would make a huge fuss about being asked to do anything. And if they did do jobs that they were doing them haphazardly because they just knew that the Lord wouldn't be able to find a replacement for them. So the Lords tried to kind of lobby the UK authorities to do something about this problem. And what ended up happening was um, the government put out two statutes. Both were aimed at curtailing wages, and they both stipulated that wages for peasants had to be set at pre-plague levels. So there's no interest rate policy or anything, but there is definitely statutes put in place to try and prevent the wage growth from spiraling out of control. What type of things would you look forward from history or what kind of questions do you still have as a student of history in terms of how uh, how the post-coronavirus uh, period will transpire? I think that like many of us, I am looking to see whether 
this kind of recent uptick in cases in some of the states that reopened is going to be something more lasting or whether it's a brief uptick, because there are a lot of papers and examples from the Spanish flu that are very reminiscent of today, where there was business owners protesting about not being able to operate their businesses and open up their shops. But also, it'll be interesting to see what I think is in the next maybe crisis or crash, what people's expectations are in terms of monetary policy and fiscal stimulus based on what's happened this time around. Because it's one of those things where now that the door has been opened, what seems radical this time might become the expectation the next time around. You know, everyone has seen these charts and stories of, remember, the the second wave of the Spanish flu was worse than the first. But was there anybody in 1918 saying, oh, remember, you know, what happened, the second wave of X? Or is the awareness of the concept of a second wave something that makes this uh, unique and thus maybe a reason to think that history won't play out because... When you, th- when you can observe something and when you can describe something, you usually don't really get the same as last time. I think, while they might, it might not have been like the second wave, the exact phrasing, there were definitely people who were advocating for continued kind of lockdown and quarantine in 1918 because they were aware that people continuing to go out and assemble in crowds would only cause the to linger around longer. But what is interesting and related to your point is that one reason to be more optimistic for today is the media was not going to report on bad news like this, like Spanish flu. I mean, World War One's going on. But back to your point is the fact that today it's the opposite where literally all we read about is coronavirus, right? And so everyone is going to be more cognizant of the risks involved and how and where we can do things to prevent the continued uh, spread of the virus. So that is definitely one major reason to be optimistic is there's much uh, broader knowledge of how to stop the spread. That was Joe Weisenthal and Tracy Alloway in conversation with Jamie Catherwood. You can hear the full interview with Jamie on this week's episode of Odd Lots. And that's our show today. For coverage of the outbreak from 120 bureaus around the world, visit Bloomberg.com coronavirus. And if you like the show, please leave us a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It's the best way to help more listeners find our global reporting. The Prognosis Daily Edition is produced by Topher Forges, Jordan Gaspure, Magnus Henriksen, and me, Laura Carlson. Today's main story was reported by Joe Weisenthal and Tracy Alloway. Original music by Leo Sidrin. Our editors are Rick Schein and Francesca Levy. Francesca Levy is Bloomberg's head of podcasts. Thanks for listening.